Hey listeners, a few hours after we finished recording this episode of the show, Fantasy Flight Games formally announced the conclusion of their license agreement with Games Workshop, effective February 28, 2017. We'll obviously cover this in the news in a future show, but at this point we just wanted to stop and recognise the hard work of the entire Fantasy Flight team and their freelancers, both past and present, in helping bring the Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40k universes to the fans in multiple formats, especially RPGs. Over the past three years, we've made a lot of great friends through FFG, and I would like to personally thank the team there for the support of the fan base and our show specifically. To all the current and former FFG guys and freelancers that contributed to our show, both Tims, Ross, Sam, Andy and Max, thank you for all that you've done for 40k roleplaying, and we look forward to new reasons to catch up with you guys in the future. Thought for the day against the alien and the traitor, there is no fair way to fight. Hello, explorers, and welcome to episode 72 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennia, using the gaming systems created first by Black Industries and then by Fancy Flight Games. Uh, each episode, we cover a different game system, and for today's episode, we'll be covering Rogue Trader, which is handy because we're playing a Rogue Trader game. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, let's have a quick chat about... It's been a, I think it's been close to a month since we last recorded an episode. It's been a bit long because of travel and everything else going on yeah. but uh, there's been quite a bit of gaming in the interim yes. so I ran my Scion game which yep. is still tracking along well uh, we, were, we did a session of Rogue Trader yes uh, how'd you find that one was it oh it went quite well I mean all things considered that really it was one combat character in combat situations and other characters who can't really fight <laughs> it wasn't it, all, I think all the combats you got yourselves into didn't you pretty much yeah. you, you, you poked the you poked the bear until it, it uh, got angry. Until it got angry, but <laughs> we it. needed to. That's it, yeah. So it was all about discovery, I think, would be the right way to put it. It, it yeah. was more of a case of poking the turtle until it stuck its head out. That's it. Uh, we also played a session of our Roll20 game of Dark Heresy, which you missed out on, Mike, because you yeah. were stuck working that night. Did you Did you hear anything about it from... No, I haven't. I haven't okay. listened to it yet. All right, well, I, I don't know if Sam would have told you some stuff about it at all, or... Other than telling me it went well and she enjoyed herself, no. Okay, all right. Well, it is up on YouTube. Well, see, so the first half is up on YouTube right now. I'm going to put the second half up on YouTube tonight, which will be before I get the podcast up. So the time you hear the podcast, both both, set, halves, both, both halves of the session should be up as well. So okay. it was a bit of fun anyway. So it was a difficult one because there was there was sort of a, not a mandatory combat, but there was a combat in the, the scenario that could happen in any of many spots. So I couldn't really build a combat map having to build like 10 combat maps to see where the group finally decided to turn violent so uh, they did it pretty much straight away but I didn't we had to do it all without the sort of the combat maps I've been using from time to time in the show yeah uh, and then finally our old Black Crusade group has sort of reformed again not to play Black Crusade but we're digging out the old uh, White Wolf Vampire Dark Ages system yep and so we did a character creation night once again you couldn't make it but you've got yourself it. sorted yep. out on the, on the back end but yeah so that's going to be a a future gaming project anyway so so quite a bit in the last fortnight 
I also point out actually just on the side of gaming, I, I've started buying some more 40k stuff again. So I bought Death Mask, um, which I think I, I want to review it. I'm not, we're not going to review it today because I cover. I'm cover, already got something else to review that's Rogue Trader related, but I think we might cover it next episode, which is Death Watch because Death Watch makes sense. Yeah, yeah, there has been some controversy about it, you know. So I'll, I'm not going to go that now, but I'll cover that in yeah. in next episode. Uh, I also managed to find a gaming store which had an old copy of Dark Vengeance for $100, which for what you get in there, you know, like Chaos Dreadnought, um, Space Marine Terminators, bikes, everything, it's a, it's a good deal. Like, I'm actually like thinking about just buying up all the various boxes I can get because you get quite a bit in them for a, a reduced cost anyway. So, yeah. although and if you're a Marine collector, you you generally you'll get a big army because Marines are in every major box. That's it. Although, I mean, have you done much miniature building recently? Yes. Okay, so given, keeping in mind that most of the stuff now is plastic, yeah. what kind of glue do you use? Um, I actually use a plastic-based glue. Okay. Yeah, right. uh, thick and a thin. Yep. So I use the thicker stuff if there's going to be gaps, because yep. it actually, as it dries up, it, it fills the gaps in, so yep. I don't have to go, then go and use a sealer or a, or a polyfiller-type stuff or green stuff to fill the gaps. Yep. And I use a, a very thin one for the, for the easy sets. Okay, like, nice. Like tactical marines, yep. thin glue. Because I, so I use super glue. Right? Yeah. I, I use I actually quite like um, the Privateer Press super glue. Like I, I don't use the GW stuff. The GW stuff has a nice advantage of that little sort of pin dropper as such, but it's obscenely expensive per mill yeah. as such. So yeah, that, you know, well, that's why you use it. plastic glue. Yeah. Okay. Now this is the problem I've been finding with so building the stuff from Death Mask. And this is not part of the review. Not doing the review yet. Is that some of the figures, some of the parts clearly have bits that are designed to hold them together, you know? So there's like, literally, a, there's like the, the, the model joins at the knee and there's like a deliberate wedge shape inside the leg and then a deliberate wedge-shaped hole inside the leg, inside the foot, so that it all connects, it gets yeah. together. But other times, and this is the most common one, especially where a model can be posed, is like, say, Space Marine torsos have a flat shoulder and then the arms have a flat termination as such. And... I've just really, I don't know, I haven't built models for a while and I, I was really getting frustrated sometimes trying to build some of the figures that, yeah. you know, like gravity would gravity would pull them apart, basically. Yeah. So you're better off with a plastic glue. Super glue takes a little bit longer to dry, generally, yeah. or, or get tacky enough yeah. to hold it in place. That With a plastic glue, pretty much it melts plastic together for a start. Yeah. So, so long as you don't use too much of it, yeah. you're okay. <laughs> Plus it also stops that horrible white frosting that you'll get, which can actually have an effect on the priming of the model really? as well. Okay, can. I mean, I primed over that in the past and never had a problem with it, but um, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because uh, my, my brother-in-law a while ago, he's, he's a car nut, and he went into like one of the sort of car retailers and bought this build-your-own-functioning V8 plastic motor kit as such so like you know furnace that function you turn you turn a crank and it shows you all the pistons that moving but it's all clear plastic and he's like can i borrow your modeling stuff and i said no worries so borrow, borrow my super glue and of course using the super glue on the plastic all the clear plastic has been covered in that frost that frost and you can't see into the bits anymore it looks terrible yeah so. <laughs> plastic glue where okay. possible no worries all right yeah okay let's get back to today's show we are talking about road trader uh, we'll do our news section. There's a little bit to talk about there. There's a, a few little developments. Uh, then we'll do. A, we're going to talk about the achievement point system in Rogue Trader. Uh, then the, we're going to cover the sword class frigate. Uh, talk about plot hooks, war gear. We're doing a review of Shedding Light, which will be the final sort of published already thing we're covering on Rogue Trader. Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about creating your own aliens or your own Xenos in the game as well, since yeah. I've done that in my own Rogue Trader game. 
Uh, then we'll do our regular community section and close out the show. So a bit of a longer intro. Let's get into the show proper now. Okay. Command acknowledged accessing Imperial archives. All right, let's jump into the news. And I guess the big development of the past few weeks has been the fact that uh, if you go on now to Drive Through RPG and you go to the Fantasy Flight Games section of Drive Through RPG, you will see that all of the Warhammer 40k properties have been removed. So, yeah, all of it, Dark Heresy, Road Trade, it's, it's all gone there. If you if you'd previously bought those PDFs, they're still in your library. You can still access those books. Um, so it's similar to when I bought the the Marvel RPG licensed stuff from Margaret Weiss Productions. That was like, you know, once it was gone, it was gone because the Marvel license was very specific. But since I bought them, you can still access them through your, your library link on Drive Through RPG. But yeah, so all the books I bought PDFs are all still there in my library, but they are you can no longer buy any new ones from um, uh, from Drive Through RPG. That's it. Yeah, Do they so. still have their Star Wars stuff and everything else up? Now, well, see, Star Wars has never been on there because, from what I understand, and, and I think it's never been confirmed, but I know that historically... Um, their licenses were a bit funny, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, that's it. Like, like, they, they consider... Uh, like, I remember that there was when um, uh, the Saga edition of Star Wars was out, uh, somebody built a character builder for it, and they got, like, a cease and desist because they were told that a character builder was software... And software was under the Lucas Arts license, not under the Lucas Film license that the uh, RPG was issued under, as such. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, they have the yeah. craziness <laughs> of their licenses. Just yeah, that's it, that's it. Yeah. So I think that one of the requirements that FFG have, I speculate, that they can't produce digital materials for the Star Wars license. Oh, okay. I was just wondering whether it was a case of um, FFG having an issue with. Uh drive-through RPG or specifically with these products? No, so for example, like the one that I think I mentioned in a recent show was the fact that when they picked up the Legend of the Five Ling license, they posted every book from every edition of the RPG that AEG had posted. Uh, 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 even the um, Wizards of the Coast Oriental Adventure stuff that they had up under their own yeah. their own page as well. So, yeah, I'd say that this is, once again, speculating, I don't know it all here, but I'd say this is indicative of the, the end of the... I mean... Look, all the, all of the 40k stuff is still up on the FFG website. Yep. So, uh, although that being said, I think someone was saying that most of the books say they're now out of stock or out of print or something. Like that, you know, although they actually, I looked at the the coming soon section of the website this week, and there were still reprints of some Rogue Trader and Death Watch books listed there as well. So, still and Dark Age Second Edition. So, yeah. But I'm not sure. We we just wait and see at the moment. Uh, so there's been a lot of speculation on EN World and some other sites about what's going to happen with the 40k RPG license. You know, will it go in under Games Workshop? Will that? I mean, they may not do anything with it at all. They may say that what we've got it here is enough, and you know, we're not going to make a lot more money by doing it again. But I guess we'll wait and see. And I actually, uh, as you're listening to the show just yesterday, I, did you see the the link I posted on the yeah, on the Facebook page the, here the about? Pigeon link. Yeah, so it was just a, it was a joke article from Point and Clickbait saying that you know. 40k had issued a new gaming license to a pigeon which flew into their office by mistake as such and yeah. I, I found it quite amusing but it has caused some real they, 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 I mean there was there was some um, like uh, really aggressive stuff on our Facebook page yesterday like whoever someone posted some really rude stuff on another user and it got deleted by someone before I had a chance to do it so I'm assuming the person decided to retract their comment but there was some really sort of inflamed comments on there about it too like I thought, okay, it's a bit of satire. I found it funny. Let's put it up. But there's some people who really take offence to, um, yeah. The suggestion not <laughs> that not every single game that they release is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, you always end to get some people who, who take things a little bit more seriously or whatever. 
you know, some people do. It's yeah. okay. Um, I personally think that there are goods and bad things to do with the fact that they're issuing so many licenses. Yeah. The good side is that it gets more people interested in the hobby. It gets more bums on seats, so to speak. But bad side is you are going to get some absolute lemon games. Yeah. I mean, you always will. Some of the games are going to be absolute garbage. Yeah. But it does mean that you get to be excited about the ones which are really good. Yeah, that's right, yes. So, uh, yeah, look, I, what I've heard, um, rumours are that GW is a lot more accepting now of fan-based creations. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we haven't got a cease and desist. Yeah. You know, they, they, they abide this podcast. Uh, I, As far as I know, this, everything has been fine with Lord Inquisitor. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's um, yeah, provided you read their terms and conditions and uh, uh, you know comply with that. It's everything. I think it's everything is fine. So yeah. anyway, so just some, some thoughts there. We'll see what happens over time. Uh, moving on to GW itself first off. So looking at their website, they've got now uh, Traders Hate, which appears to be a new Chaos Space Marine based uh, critical supplement that's coming out, along with. A whole bunch of new Chaos Space Marines, in, yep. including the new Khan, the Betrayer model looks like a quite a nice one as well. With yep. uh, Gorchild, I believe, is the axe he got from Angron. Yep, yep, yep. Gorchild. Uh, yep. There's also rumours that Gene Stealer Colts is is a upcoming. Uh, there's rumours been floating around for. Decades, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's but... also, also rumours that Blood Angels is probably the next one coming. Yeah. Um, but Kill Team, we know, is definitely coming out. Kill Team is. Like a, I guess a smaller uh, skirmish rule set for the game. There was previously kill team rules in an old old white dwarf, or I think around third edition days. Yeah, and um, they they actually had kill team rules. I think it was in fourth edition in the back of the book. Okay, yeah. Um, this is just an expansion on that sort of thing, a way to make the game smaller, easier to play. Quicker yeah, to play. it's easier easier barrier to entry as well. I mean, there's been quite a few popular uh, skirmish based miniatures games recently, so things like. Um, Iron Kingdoms, uh, Infinity, uh, you know, just just a few different things where you know, it's really you know, five to six figures is your is your representation on the board as such. So and, and yeah. it makes games go a lot faster as well. I think in a lot of Most cases, definitely, so, yes. yeah, it does break down that difficulty back in. But that being said, I've decided I've committed to teaching my now five year old son Warhammer. We're going to start pretty simple though, you know, but. Uh, I, I, I think that when we first play, I might... Cause, By simple, you mean don't eat the models. Yeah, no, he's, he's five, he's all right, you know. But I think the thing is, he's at that stage in life right now where he doesn't like losing. Uh, you, know, you only play a game so you can win, so I might have to make sure there are some very asymmetrical battles. And it's like, I will pit, you know, my uh, my single guy against your entire army, you know. Oh, look, you won again, good boy. You know? I think you need to teach him that sometimes it's okay to lose. Yeah, well, that's a progressive thing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, look, your victory this time wasn't so absolute, you know, and <laughs> slowly run it down. <laughs> uh, all right, and what else? So on the Eternal Crusade side, uh, Orcs are now on the main servers as well, so I think that's all of the uh, the major races up. Uh, they've also been testing 50 v 50, matches as well so that all appears to be going well I haven't had a chance to get on since they've been testing those things but it looks alright I should also point out that I noticed that there's been an announcement recently that they're adding Tau to Battlefleet Gothic yes Tau coming out soon and I think for this weekend it's 40% off on, on all their stuff and digital download content for Battlefleet Gothic ok nice yeah. Yeah. so that's the news oh plus Lord Inquisitor sorry Plus Lord oh, oh, that's what yeah, I should point out. That's it, definitely. But the so Lord Inquisitor, which was a three D project, uh, which we've been sort of following, has had its first eight minutes now put up. The, the prologue, 
It's, only, it's taken, what, six years to get to this point? So, yeah. uh, six years for eight minutes. <laughs> but, but, but that said, it gets easier and faster as you go along. Yeah, they, they, you've they, got they, more they, and more of the models yeah, completed. They've got the assets. Look, I mean, uh, we posted the link on our website, uh, and, and very nicely we got to have an advanced look at the, the episode, or the episode, the prologue as well. Uh, and as a person who is uh, involved in 3D stuff, I'm, you know, I'm really quite jealous of the, the skills involved. Like, uh, it's one thing to do good character models, but what really got me with the prologue was the the depth of the shots. You know, yeah. the, the, the sheer yeah. amount of detail of Holy Terror. The terrain in the background. Yeah, that's it. Uh, all that stuff. And yeah. some people have pointed out, oh, but you know, the Imperial, the Imperial Fists are all the same... Um, the same skin, like they've got, you know, all the same scratches in the same spots on their armor. It's like, but you know, it's, they appear for like two seconds of the of the, the prologue as such. <laughs> you know what? It's still better than the Ultramarines movie. That's it. Yeah, and and look, one of my fears with it when it was coming out was so I, I, first the first thing we saw was the trailer. Okay? Yeah. And the trailer had me a bit worried because the voice acting in the trailer was not spectacular. You know, uh, very, very sort of dry acting that you would expect from a role player trying their hand at acting and I was really worried that you know they're going to get this great scenery great animation and that the voice acting will let it down but i got to say the voice acting in the prologue has been, was fine it was, yeah. it was good yeah I think that some people have said and, and it was a little bit a little bit of a lip sync issue um, I don't know if they because they did actual mocap as well I don't know if they use facial mocap or whether uh, they just use like animation foams or something but uh, yeah that's that's probably my, literally the only thing I can fault was some of the some of the voice to lip synchronization was was not perfect, but look, I mean, it, it's it's such a good um, prologue. Yeah, it's worth checking. I out. I think it so. recaptures 40k really well. Yeah, we have linked to it from our Facebook and Google Plus pages, but we'll also link to it from our show notes for this episode as well. Yeah. All right, so there's the news done. Okay, let's okay. keep going. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. Let's get into our discussion about achievement points now, and I need to refer back to the fact that this is an extension of the Endeavor system we discussed back in episode 32. Yep. And this is not going to be such a heavy system discussion at the moment. It's more a talk about the, I guess, the uses of achievement points in the game, some things that we've found from running and playing the games as well, uh, and just some general thoughts on the system uh, overall. Yeah. So just as a, something of a recap to how Endeavors work. Uh, so you've got your various levels of Endeavors, including better Endeavors, and they will require a certain number of achievement points. And those achievement points are usually categorized. So as the GM of the game starts to think about the various objectives of an endeavor, they need to basically assign a achievement point requirement and a, uh, a, a descriptor that goes with it. You know, so it might be, for example, that before this world can be colonized, step one is pacifying the local populace. So it might say that requires 200 military achievement, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, then you might say, okay, it's been now that it's been uh, pacified, we need to organise a regular uh, transport of new people to the planet. So that's going to be require 300 points of trade, for example, or you know, we need a missionary. So it's going to be 100 points of creed, creed, etc. Or we et cetera. need to figure out exactly where to put the first colony. That's 200 points of exploration. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Whatever the case might be. Yeah. So that in itself is quite simple. Uh, the first thing I guess it's coming up with is the the numbers involved, yeah. because although the different endeavor sizes give you an indication of what your total number should be, the other thing that's that's brought into the fact is that there is a chart which shows 
the number of achievement points derived from, uh, I guess, a role at, at various difficulties. And uh, ostensibly, if you are assigning just a system to doing this, the, the concept the book produces is that your, your objective will have some requirements, it will have some actions, and it will, end, it will culminate in a role, a skill role or whatever the case may be, and the difficulty of that role will be determined by the number of points that you, you need to achieve to get it. So, you know, the default 100 is a challenging plus zero. You know, and it, it going down to easy, which is uh, plus, see, plus 30, is only worth 10 points, for example. So, for me, this is where it's, it's become a little bit more hard to actually bring into my games because, uh, yeah, you don't just want to say, okay, guys, you know, you, you've got a, uh, it's, it's a minor endeavor, so it's only, it's only going to cost you 500 points. So, I need you to make me five plus zero rolls. Yeah. It almost takes you back to the old uh, D&D 4th edition skill challenge rules. And that's not what it's intended to be. Uh, for, for me, I've always used the the role difficulty as, I guess, a meta thing. Yeah, it's a, a guideline for the difficulty of the task they're going to be facing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of those things, you know, like pacifying a planet. Yeah, okay, I suppose that you could do that with like a Tactica Imperialis role. But really, it should be something that is more involved. Uh, both in terms of rolling and storyline, than just, I have good strategy, I send my troops down, make a roll, oh, I succeeded, ergo, you know, that, that objective is completed, tick, move on to the next one. Uh, it needs to be a lot more involved in that. So I guess from a, a GM advice point of view, uh, I'd always be saying, make sure that your objectives are in line with what you feel needs to be done to actually complete the endeavour. Yeah, certainly still use those those descriptors, but don't just lock it into the role. You know, maybe use the, the points requirement to indicate how difficulty that's how how difficult something's going to be. So, for example, uh, two hundred points is a hard plus twenty. So, rather than making people make a plus twenty roll, I would be saying it would be just from a narrative point of view a difficult thing to do. You know, people will be resistant to it. Uh, you know, it's going to might require a lot of time, might require a lot of resources. Uh, it is, you know, meta descript- described as hard. Uh, and, you know, if there's going to be some roles from it, sure, if you want to, you could apply the, the plus 20. Or what you could do is you could use uh, well, the minus 20. You could use the minus 20 as a, as a default point and say, well, look, if you put in the extra effort to bring in additional resources above what's required or you do exceptionally good role playing, you know, I'm going to actually knock any dice rolls down to a minus 10 or a zero or something yeah, on those lines. A good example would be, you say, a commerce role to organise the trade route. It's going to be at minus 20. You look at your stats and you go, okay, that, that gives me a 15% chance. That's not so great. Yeah. Do a bit of role play and they come to an agreement that the trader will do this for you in exchange for some sort of service. Exactly right. Whatever that service may be. You'll still have to make the role to... to to do the uh, terms of the contracts and actually get what you want out of him. Yeah, or role play it out. Or yeah. role play it out. Yeah. But you will get substantial bonuses to the to the things if you agree to do whatever horrible job he wants you to do. Yeah. Simple. Exactly. Okay, now the second part of this is the descriptor. That's what I want to talk about. So, as I said, you, know, you as a GM will say that this part's going to be a, a creed or it's going to be an exploration. But you should certainly not feel locked down to that if the players come up with good ideas. Yeah. So let's go back to the example of using trade to set up a, a trade route of colonists to come to the planet. You know, What if they say, well, look, we just go to a nearby planet and we empty out their cells. 
and, and we use that. So we use those as that. So could we therefore use the criminal um, element if we if we're better with that? If we've got people that have got you know knowledge underworld or, or under peer underworld that sort of stuff or. You know, something about your ship gives you a bonus to, yeah, to criminal. This, yeah, this is definitely one of the things that you should do. But as the GM, you should always look at that and go, well, what sort of repercussions will that have? You know, bringing a collection of farmers and, and engineers and all this sort of thing to settle this planet or bringing a whole bunch of, you know, gangers and <laughs> narco peddlers and all that sort of thing. What sort of settlement are they going to build? Because they're not going to want to be farmers. Yeah. Almost certainly, they're not going to want to be farmers, and it's going to affect the colony on and the outcomes of your endeavour in in various ways. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what you could do is adjust your difficulty as well. So, say, look, it's relatively easy to bring in you know some colonists. It's going to be a hundred or two hundred point objective, but to get the sort of criminals that are going to deliver the sort of outcomes you want, it's going to be a three hundred or more requirement. So, they've got to actually get more points that way. But maybe the group is more suited to that particular skill set and they'll, they'll do better that way you know yeah, so yeah. certainly you know don't discourage creative use of the different uh i mean it's it's funny because i always talk about skill bargaining how much i hate it and, and right here what i'm advocating really is skill bargaining uh, of a sort you know it's, it's of a, a sort so yeah. long as it fits at the end of the day the gym has to have the final say if you say oh i've got 500 points of creed and you need 300 points of military well i just bring in 500 points worth of fanatics yeah okay <laughs> but that probably isn't going to win you a war no. it might win you a battle <laughs> it might also flatten everything you were trying to you know like fight the war over as well yeah exactly so yeah. certainly so you can either say no or just have unintended outcomes which lead into additional adventures yeah oh i brought in 500 zealous fanatics and they've now set up camp and now they don't want to leave my lovely little little place they feel that, that my colonists aren't quite pure enough to the creed and some of them are starting to form a cult yeah uh before i jump into the next couple of parts i just want to sort of throw in here as well that even if you are being a bit more meta than just the straight out dice roll with this endeavor system it's still important that you give players the numerical achievement points yeah, you actually say, okay, you have earned 300 points of Creed, or in the case may, and there's going to be a couple of reasons for that, and they're, they're my next few points. The first is that one of the elements that enhances this is the ship starship system, because some of your starships will have bonuses to exploration, bonuses to Creed, bonuses to military, whatever the case may be. And you know, the players need to actually get the benefit of that. They've spent the ship points, or they've spent the private factor to acquire components, that has given them these benefits and they need to actually enjoy that. So that being said, I also think that the onus is on the players to come up with ways that they, they can't just say, look, I need to hit a hundred points of military. My ship's got 50, so I only need 50. You know, they need to actually work into the narrative how the military component of the ship has contributed to actually delivering the outcome that they're trying to deliver. Because if the ship's not there, or it's not in the sort of context where, you know, for whatever reason, that their forces are off fighting somewhere else, whatever the case may be, uh, they need to make sure that it's it's clear and fair why this, this, this has happened. Exactly. Go- going to the game which you're running at the moment, our yes. ship gives certain bonuses to military. Yes. But they do have very specific circumstances. We have planetary bombardment cannons yep. and aeronautical ship base which can aid ground forces yeah 
that's only any use where we can actually bring a bombardment cannon to bear <laughs> and use fighter planes to blast yeah. the enemy apart. If you're fighting in a cave system underground, yeah, air superiority In, in, in a secret volcano lair, Mike. Secret volcano lair, okay. <laughs> there you go, both gone. Yeah. You, you can't bombard this thing because you need it intact. Yes. And you can't use fighter support because every, all the fighting's going on underground. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that being said, you, you want to be careful you don't fall into the old GM problem of finding it a hassle that the group has those points and so therefore always staging your combats in a cave system or a secret volcano lair or something which excludes the players from you can oh. utilize the things that they've paid points for. Yeah. Um, all right, and the last thing that, that that leads into as well is the fact that according to the rules as written, if you overachieve, so... You know, for objective two, you required 200 creep points and you managed to get together 300. Maybe because your ship already had 300. That's actually quite high. But, you know, maybe you needed 100, but you had 150 or whatever. You've gone over your requirement. You can actually translate the the amount you've gone over by... 100 points. 100 points to one additional profit factor on the, um, uh, on, on the overall endeavor. And this is one of the points in the system that I wonder how much it actually got play-tested in development because... Yeah, it's really, it's only a problem with trade because yeah. it's possible to have a very big cargo-hauling ship which could easily have seven or 800 points worth of trade bonus. Yeah. And if you're doing very minor trade objectives but you happen to take, you know, 30 tonnes of gold <laughs> along with you as well to sell on the open market... It's pretty easy to get but, and, and this right is what I found first. a couple of times was that uh, in when we're running on the Unbound is that rules was written, they would have actually got more product factor from just their base bonus points than from some of the you know, people were actually going after minor endeavors because they knew they would just get a huge boost from the you know, the, the their high achievement points from their ship. Uh, which I, I think was incongruous to what we were really trying to achieve at the game. So I certainly house ruled that any benefit from overachievement could not exceed the original profit factor award of the mission. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's a fair fair thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it disincentivizes just constantly after minor objectives, which, at the end of the day, narr- narrowly isn't going to be fun. You well, know. it is going to be a bit boring, but if the players want to play a boring game, it's up to the players. <laughs> what if the GMs want to run a boring game? Well, <laughs> they shouldn't have become a GM. No. Um, it's, yeah... But early on, they should be doing minor endeavours. Oh, definitely, I mean, yeah, early. The simple fact is, early on, they're going to be wanting to do these things to earn the profit factor. You, as a GM, have to create the narrative that they want to go after these bigger things instead of just sitting back. It was the whole PvP content of, of the Unbound that caused it. Yeah. Everyone wanting to have more profit factor than everyone else. Therefore, they wanted to do things that maximised it rather than... Just going out and having fun. Yeah, well, it's like I always say: if the, if there is a system, somebody will try to exploit it. Yes. And there there are exploitable points of the system, basically. So oh, definitely. Yeah. I suppose that comes on to the next bit of what happens if you overachieve in something which wasn't required. Yeah, I mean, it's not really covered in the book, is it? it doesn't no. say, you know. So, what happens if we're doing a? Uh... We're doing a military yeah. objective and trade, and we bring along five hundred points worth of creed with us. Yeah. So, you know, really, and I think we discussed this in episode thirty-two as well. But we basically said that that's still potentially achievable as long as the players can bring 
that extra element into the narrative. Yeah. You know, so, yep, they they support their military force on the ground with fanatics. Uh, and that helped them, you know, win the battle with with, with, with a less... Well, less bloody result. Hmm. I don't know, but... <laughs> with a less bloody result on the part of the military. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, as you said, the fact that they've done that may mean that, okay, well, the collateral damage to what they were trying to actually secure has been greater because... These, these, you know, fanatics running around flamethrowers yeah, so you didn't might... stop to think about, you know, is this flammable, you know, wooden shrine something that my master might want? Yeah, well, so... would you say as a GM, would you house rule it that for every 200 points of these sorts of things, only grant one profit factor? Yeah, that sounds fair, if, it, if it's outside the scope. If, of it, if it's outside the scope, I mean, you're doing a military and exploration objective and you bring along a whole bunch of trading goods... Yeah. you may not actually find anyone to trade with, yeah. which means that although you'll get some money back when you sell the stuff off wherever you get to next, it's not going to be as much yeah, as it yeah. could have been. You do, you're doing a, a trade agreement with a group of Eldar and you bring an itinerant priest. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's be negative trade, negative value, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I mean, these are just some general thoughts on the system itself. I mean, uh, it's worked quite well for us in the yeah. past and... Uh, I mean, in our Rogue Trader game, because the group's only really just gotten the ship, well, it hasn't even taken off yet for the first time in the game, despite having played for now four sessions. Yes. Uh, so we ha- we've we've established that there are some endeavours, but we haven't actually started to pursue them yet. Uh, but, you know, we will, and, and we'll have more of a go. And we saw how it worked in The Unbound too. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. So the points I'll be raising to you are, you know, always go for narrative over dice rolling. Yeah. You know? Uh, you know, and if you, if you are going to resolve with a dice roll... Make sure that you include the narrative into that. So reward good role playing, reward good ideas, reward bringing extra resources. Punish people who just say, "Oh, look, I'm not good. This one's going to roll." I hate that. <laughs> um, okay, then also make sure that whatever you do, you still include the point system, and make sure that you are, you give people options that allow them to utilize the things that they have they, they they've already bought into, uh, and finally. Uh, come up with what works for you insofar as the system because the system itself is a little bit incomplete I think uh, so go through it and work out what you want to do with overachievement and the like yep alright then let's keep going okay all subsequents report to the administrator for career assignment okay back to our career or in this case slash starship hull discussion for yep. Rogue Trader and today we're going to be talking about the sword class frigate the venerable, the venerable sword class. Sorry, yes. Okay. Then. It's actually one of the better, better holes to take as a starting crew. Yeah, it's one of the. I'd actually say if you're unsure, you know, and you've got a, and you've got a pretty even mix of ship points and profit factor, that this is, you know, a this good, is a the way good, to go. Good way to go. Yeah. That's it, yeah. The only downside of it is, doesn't have a prow slot, so you can't give it a lot. Okay. Well, let's come back to that a bit later, anyway. So. First off, the role of the sword class frigate in general in Rogue Trader. I mean, frigates as a concept are all about escorting, escorting large larger vessels, basically. So you talk about you know modern modern naval slash age of sail slash you know forty k. The frigate is a vessel among others that is designed to provide additional mobility and protection for larger, more vulnerable ships. Uh, that are usually, you know, the targets of <laughs> everything from other, other other flying flying things to you know other other ships as such, yeah. uh, and that's really the role this, this fulfills. It, it is first and foremost a military vessel. Uh, 
yeah, it's it's really a ubiquitous design. I mean, the the sword class figure is one of the oldest imperial patterns. You know, it's been around for for millennia, and it is you know almost every single battle battle fleet would have sword class frigates in the battle group. Several squadrons of sword exactly class right, frigates. yeah, yeah, many so, sword yeah. class frigates. So as difficult as starships are to come by in 40k, this one's one of the easier ones to come by. Yeah, it's st- still worth you know the same value as many worlds as such. You know, but it's yeah. Certainly, it's quite achievable, uh, and and you know, being a frigate uh, as a vessel, it, it really gives you that that good mixture of both um, speed and combat durability. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's you know similar sort of speed to a raider, but with a little bit more sustainability as well, a little more survivability. So let's go through the stats of the uh, the sword class. It's got a speed of eight, which is the fastest speed you can achieve on a frigate without without modification. Yep. Uh, detection of 15, armor of 18, space of 40, maneuverability of 20, hull of 35, and this is probably the one drawback, really, on the sword class, is it has quite a low hull compared to other frigates. Yep. Uh, but it has got a turret rating of 2. Which it's, is the only ship smaller than a... Than a cruiser. A cruiser with Yeah, yeah. Turret. Well, sorry, I, there's maybe some... The, in the main book... Uh, the you have to go to a cruise. You have to go to the uh, the Dauntless class. But I think there might be some light cruisers with with, with, two, with yeah. two in the um, in the other books as well. But certainly, yeah, if you want to get th- that being said, I mean, using the the base rules from just the main book, turrets didn't do a, a lot. Only really know. in boarding actions. Exactly right. Yeah, but yeah. you know, once you start bringing in stuff like torpedoes and that sort of thing, you know, turrets and become a, a major weight of bays and all that sort of thing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, it costs forty ship points, uh, and as you mentioned, it's got two dorsal weapons. So in general, frigates... So the advantage of a, of a raider over a frigate is most of the raiders could mount a prow weapon. Most of the frigates only had dorsal. Yeah. So And two dorsal is good because, I mean, it, it's left, right, forward. Front, that's right, yeah. yeah. It gives you quite a, bit of, quite a bit of versatility. There are some... Like, like the Firestorm has the option of one dorsal, one prow, uh, if you were going that path, or even the... Um, uh, not the it's it's one, one from the other book which has both two dorsal and a prow... But the prow is dedicated to uh, torpedo bays. That's it. Yeah, yeah. that's the. It starts with F as well. From it's yeah. from um, Battlefleet Coronas. Falchion. Falchion. That's it. The Falchion class. Yeah. Um, but in both cases, you're sacrificing something else to get. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, so I think that yeah, as long as you realise you can't have a lance on this ship, it really is a good way to go. And really, all that means is every fight is going to be a long fight. Yeah. There, there's you, you don't have a ship killing weapon which can hit one shot. Take something out instantly with a lucky blow. Yeah, but what you do have the advantage of is being a lot more. So, first off, being small and durable, being able to do wider turns, and also having the two dorsal mount things means that pretty much on any given turn, you will get both weapons onto your target. Unless yeah. something somehow managed to get behind yeah, you. That's it, yeah. And if, and if you're clever about it, you can probably find quite a few turns where they can't bring you know, a weapon or only one weapon to bear on you as such. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it also means that if you if you fly into the midst of several enemy ships, which I don't recommend with a sword class frigate, yeah. but you can shoot on either side as well. One yeah. weapon either side or to the front, or two on one side, take that out and then fire yeah. off onto the other side. You know, or if you're using it in the way it's intended to be used in a group, you've got another ship which can lance some, strike something to get the, the shields down, then you've got you know, more macro batteries to pummel it with. So. Yeah, yeah, and you've also got the other advantage of the fact that because it doesn't have a prow weapon, you can mount the reinforced prow onto it, the, yeah. the big beak 
prow? Yeah, I don't know if really if, if this is a ramming ship though. Not example. really, but no. it does have that look of that, yeah. that's the standard Imperial that look is, is that that's, giant prow. That's true. Uh, okay, so it doesn't have any special traits like some ships do. Uh, just to go through some uh, some key useful components, I think that of the various bridge types, I quite like the Shipmaster's Bridge because yeah. uh, it gives you those benefits of you know your your extra ballistic skill, um, your extra command checks. You know, it's probably the, the, the it's one of the more expensive options, but it's a good way to go. You've only got forty ship points onto the ship itself, so you can spend a few. Spend points. That's right. Yeah. Um, as far as weapons go, uh, so this is not so much a mechanical benefit, but if you read the fluff on the sword. The whole thing was the sword was one of the very first vessels that focused on laser-based weaponry rather than plasma-based weaponry. Mm. So if you want to keep it like, if you, say you're building an ancient ship that is, you know, one of the early frontline fighters of the Imperium, then something like a Sunseer laser battery. Or if you've gone for one of the options that gives you some Archaeotech, I'd be looking at something like the Star of our laser macro battery as well. Gives you a lot of free power as well in that case. But Personally, I think with the high speed you've got, slap on some Pyros melter cannons onto mm. the damn thing. Get in close and set fire to your enemies. <laughs> sure, it's only got a range of about three, but this thing's fast enough and enough armour that if you're fighting against lighter ships, you're going to absolutely cripple them real quick. Yeah. I would just would never use it against anything <laughs> bigger. Uh, given the military options, of, uh, uh, so origins of the ship, I'd be looking at something like a Munitorium uh, or Barracks. You know, to give you those military benefits, give you the macro. The Munitorium gives you benefit on macro batteries. You're not going to have lance weapons, so it's going to be all your weapons are going to be affected by your Munitorium. Yeah. Um, and if you want to compensate for its one weakness being the hull integrity, then look at reinforced interior bulkheads. Yeah. You know, to try it. that being said, that costs two ship points to add. I think three hull integrity. It's not really worth it. Where it's only cost one more ship point to go to something like the Firestorm, which has 38 hull integrity originally. So, um, yeah. I don't think that 35 hull integrity, you've got pretty good armour. Yeah, that's it. Except, except the fact that, you know, you're just, you're a little bit, you know, a bit more of a glass can than other ships in the class might be. But yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's, it. you're good for, it's good for, you know, taking out you're still gonna be Yeah, you're still yeah. going to be able to take out transports and raiders. Yeah. And, and probably another frigate as well, if it if you can get into the right position on it. Because yeah. if it's only got a prowl lance, prowl weapon, if you can keep out of its front arc, yeah. you'll be fine. But... Yeah, I very rarely use a sword class frigate against something bigger than a frigate. Yeah, I mean, this comes back to the whole thing in 40k that uh, really ship captains aren't gung-ho. No. Yeah, because ships are so old and so valuable. You know, the whole concept of losing a ship, you know, they, they, they'd rather lose a world yeah. than lose a ship in some cases, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and if you go into combat, you're not going to come out of combat unscathed. Yeah, yeah it, it's a, it's a two way it's a two way shooting range, and you know both ships have become damaged. And even if you survive, there's going to be a massive requirement in terms of what it, what it takes to actually repair a ship. Yeah. Um, plus, if you're in the Imperial Navy, you might get slapped for getting your ship damaged as well. You know, if, if it was yeah. if it was an unsanctioned or unplanned fight, anyway. But that said, I, I think that it does lend itself well to the style that you said maybe not, which is the. The big prow, ram the enemy, you've got the extra turrets, do a boarding action straight away. Yeah. And that mitigates any problems you have if you're fighting against something bigger than you. Yeah. But does the, the turrets help in a in a rammed boarding action? They help in the boarding action after the ram. Okay, alright. So yeah. you ram, then board. I, normally they, they, I thought they affect hit and run, the hit and run component, but yeah. No, you, you'd be using it for the, the boarding side okay. of things. You, do, right. you can help it for hit, it does help for hit and run yeah. if they're using 
shufflecraft of some kind to board. Yeah. But for, for actual side-by-side boarding actions, yeah, they had assistance. Yeah, especially, well. especially if you've got barracks and... Yeah, murder servants. Anyone? Munitorum probably not so much help, but yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so talking about the sorting combat, I think we've already pretty much covered the sorting combat. You know, utilize your speed, utilize the two hundred seventy degree effective firing arc you've got uh, on both your weapons. Yeah, um, and yeah, just be prepared for a battle of attrition. You've got a you've got a hammer. You know, and if it if it's too big to fight against, yeah. run away. You're yeah. probably faster than it. Yeah. If it's bigger than you, it's slower than you. Almost guaranteed. Yeah. With the sword class frigate, that is the case. Yes, definitely. There's even even some smaller ships they can still that run as well. So yeah, especially yeah. transports. Transports are not fast. Oh yeah, it's going to chase down transports. You know, chase down several of the slower frigates and several of the slower raiders as well. Actually, with eight move. Yeah. Pretty good. That's it. Uh, and so, even though last thing I'm going to say, just on a final thought, is even though it is a ubiquitous design, you know, it is a very common ship. Nothing in 40k is really common, you know, especially when it comes to ships. So make sure you still give it the full personality and, and backstory of what well, that, that an Imperial ship deserves. You know, it, it has been somewhere before where it is in the game right now. It has a long history. It could be, you know, thousands, uh, if not tens of thousands of years old, uh, given given the, the configuration. So, you know, make sure that you have a bit of fun with what it is and you know, really look to play up the machine spirit oddities and the, and the past histories of the ship. Yep. Any other thoughts from you, Mike? No, no, sounds good. Okay, let's get going. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. Okay, for the plot hook today, uh, this is not a pre-written plot hook, something I want to quickly talk about. And this actually relates to the way I have started either playing or running three different Rogue Trader games. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to give three examples, all right? So the first Rogue Trader game that I was involved in was the one that you ran. Yep. And... The starting premise of that was that the uh, there was a, a lost treasure ship out there that you as the GM had built, and that the player characters were had put together a, a very basic ship that was sort of like more, not an loan ship, but something they were just basically using to engage in the first part of the storyline, which was to recover said lost treasure ship. Yeah. Okay, that's the first one. Second road trade experience I want to give is one of the first games I ran outside of the Unbound. So this was just a, a regular road trader group, uh, and the initial story there was that the uh, road trader in question was the child of an existing road trader who had expanded their wealth to the point they could now buy a second ship. And in the early part of the game, they were literally negotiating on the sale of basically buying a new ship from a mercantile guild. And then what happened was their uh, uh, their father was killed, and so they had to use their funds instead to go after, go and recover the, the the Rogue Trader's original ship as well. Yeah. And then there's a Rogue Trader we've been playing recently where the story was that the, the former Rogue Trader uh, basically brokered the family trying to raise this ancient craft ship from the surface of a planet and died close to its completion and now the player characters the you know the next generation have come there to claim that legacy as such so the commonality here is that how the group gets their ship is tantamount to the story at the start of the game uh and i think this is something that for anyone looking at starting a road trader campaign 
it's really worth something thinking about. Uh, something, something you should think about because to say simply you're in your ship and okay, we pick up the game from here and okay, what do you want to do? Uh, it seems a bit odd because your jumping off point is just an arbitrary point in this person's life. You know, uh, they've got their ship, they've got their crew and suddenly we're trolling them from today. Whereas if you start from a, a, a major changing event and a good one in Rogue Trader is the fact that we have just got a new ship or that we are just going to get a new ship uh, or that there's been some sort of situation which is suddenly called, you know, the whole hero, the whole concept of the hero's journey and the call to action as such. Uh, and, and the ship is an easy thing to tie to that. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think, Mike, in this? I mean, you ran the first game like this, so this was Yeah, really... yeah, I agree. Yeah. 100% I agree. You have to have a reason for them to sort of take up as the heroes. You have to have a kicking off point for why the adventure is starting from now instead of a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. And it kept up. The taking over the ship is a good one. Yeah. The other one is taking up the mantle of the rogue trader. Yeah. So at the funeral of the last rogue trader and start off from now. That sort of thing has to... You have to have a start point. Yeah. You can't be like the original Star Trek series where the first episode just starts and they're just flying through space. Yeah. <laughs> it always... It felt like there was something before that yeah. which we never saw. And there was. Yeah. Mm. That's it. Uh, I mean, there's the two options here in this respect, because in my recent Road Trader game, yes, the group didn't have the ship at the start. And, and yes, the first part of the game was about getting that and raising the ship. Now, the ship has already been built in terms of mechanics, and, and, and the, you as one of the players built the ship using the ship point system that we had in the game. Yeah. Conversely, there's your Road Trader game, where the ship points that we had we used to just build the basic ship we had in there, and you as the GM built the ship we were eventually going to get. Yes. So do you think there's any, any thoughts about what, what works best or is it really just down to your story or... Just down to your story. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, the, the ship which you were going to get in the treasure ship yeah. wasn't particularly a lot better than the ship you'd made yourselves. It just had a different backstory. Yes. Yeah. Had some extra points spent on it to make up for the fact that this first endeavour to get it... Yeah. Would, was actually being paid off through the, the application of the ship itself. Yeah. Yes. So just a thought. I mean, as I said, the, the, the real thing here is if you're jumping off a road trader campaign, try to jump it off around a major thing. You know, the the passing of the mantle is one. The changing or the acquisition of a new ship is another one as well. So, uh, and, and they're big things. They, you can really, I mean, we probably over-covered in the first few sessions of our road trader game getting to the ship. Uh, that was probably one of my, my one of my faults. Where I, I should have probably gotten there after one session, not three. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in the, in the meantime, uh, yeah, consider actually uh, an in, an intro or prelude or anything to your storyline as well. That is the hero's call to action. Yes. All right, let's get going. Okay. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. All right, I got a nice simple war gear one for you today. Yep. The Lord Captain's baton. Ah, yes. <laughs> the stick. The stick, yes. Uh, so this is a nice little bit of gear that appears in the main book. And it's pretty much just a uh, a piece of gear that your character, as the road trader, can carry that you know, basically indicates I'm the guy in charge. You know, yeah. uh, you know it's, it's an ornate staff. 
that you know identifies you as a Lord Captain. Well, I guess the one. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, oh, carry on, carry on. I'll... Uh, so the, the, the one thing that you can add to it mechanically as an option is the concept that it has some inbuilt electronics and effectively forms sort of something like a data lock for the command throne in the ship. So unless you place your Lord Captain's baton into the receptacle, uh, the ship itself goes into a sort of lockdown mode to prevent yeah. mutiny. There's plenty of other things you can do with it. Yes. You can say, okay, I also want to buy a power mace. Yep. And I want it to be the same item. <laughs> I was going to say, things you want to do with it, you can beat people with it, yes. Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you can make it into a powered stick. Yeah. What's the, 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 the three, rules of, three rules of trauma is that you know, it does more damage if it's blunt, if it's heavy, and if it's sharp. It's, sorry, no, if it's, if it's heavy, if it's sharp, if it's um, big. That's yeah. right. So, so if it requires two hands, if, if, it, if it, it's heavy in and of itself, or, and if it's sharp. So it's got, it fills two of those requirements. And so power yes. field could <laughs> essentially be called sharp as well, because it rips through things. That's it, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's it. You can do other things with it as well. You can say, oh, well, maybe it opens all the doors. Yeah. Without the Lord Captain's baton, no one can enter the secret library. Yeah. Or librarian. Yeah. Or maybe even cooler, you know, all the doors like open up Star Trek style if you're carrying a baton. Yeah. If not, you've got to manually open all the doors. Manually well. open the doors, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any room that detects the Lord Captain's baton is in it pumps in the freshest air it has available from, from the... Uh, every other room stinks unless like, the captain's in it. It's a biased life sustainer here. Yes. <laughs> so, and the captain never understands why everyone complains about the smell on the ship. It's always... <laughs> It's so always pleasant. nice. <laughs> yeah, if you have a lot of fun with that, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the only thing to keep in mind is if you do decide to slave systems in the ship to it, that at some point, I'm sure the gem will come up with some reason to have it taken away from you. Yeah, but, so, <laughs> but make it as gaudy and as 40k as you like. So it has to have a skull on it. Yeah, it has right. to have Probably, some sort of eagle or yeah, a quill wings. Or or wings. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, deck it all out. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Okay, nice simple one. Uh, yeah, but a bit of fun anyway. Yeah. Let's keep going. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So for our review today, we're going to be covering Shedding Light. And Shedding Light is the uh, short module that you used to be able to order from DriveThruRPG. That was basically a con module for Road Trader. And it attached to the other uh, game systems uh, short modules like Binding Contracts and Falling Star, uh, and is all part of the same storyline. So keep in mind that as this is an adventure, there will be some spoilers here. So first off, uh, I want to call attention to the fact that its connection to the other three um, modules in this story is a little bit tenuous, uh, in that it happens on the same planet at the same time, and that one of the events from the other games is experienced to a degree here, or is a, at least as a catalyst to progressing the next scene. But it really, for the most part, is disconnected from the rest of it. So the the concept of the game is that so your road trader, uh, your group has just arrived on the this planet where you have bought goods for trade. Uh, then you go through the process of selling those goods, but. In reality, you've come to this planet because there are rumors of a secret treasure being hidden on the planet, and you have actually discovered where it is on the planet, and you're now going to go into these ancient catacombs and recover said treasure. 
And uh, so the, the early part of the game really is negotiating your way through selling your goods, making arrangements, because, you know, it, it, you wouldn't be able to leave if, unless you had an actual sort of port clearance to go because you had goods to sell. So negotiating your goods to take, take onwards so then you can go and go for the treasure on the understanding that once you've got the treasure, you can escape the planet with your treasure before anyone is the wiser as such. Yeah. So, Technically, this is outside of Rogue Trader's purview. It's within yeah. the Imperium. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, first off, uh, the, the storyline sort of implies that the concept of this treasure case is not completely unknown. Others have looked for it, you know, and others have failed in the past as such. So the fact that it's on an existing Imperial world is, a, is maybe a little bit odd, I think, you know, that, uh, but that, oh, not impossible. Not but, impossible. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the treasures that people know about here on Earth, which people still haven't found. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so once you've negotiated your way through that, you then your, your group then heads into the catacombs beneath the planet's surface. And this is where the connection is to the rest of the games, because if you, if you might recall from our earlier uh, episodes where we've reviewed it, or if you've covered it, a ship, a void ship, is crashed into one of the hive worlds on the planet. Yeah. And that happens when the group is underground. So there is a you know an earthquake from the impact, but... That really is the the only sort of impact of that's that. It. Inver- that's yeah. the extent of the link. They don't they don't go to the they don't go to that hive. They don't fight things in that hive. They don't you know as, as in the context of this module, encounter anything else to do with the forces of chaos or the tyrannids or anything else that happens in that hive. But what they do have is that the impact of um, uh, the, that that ship crashing into the planet wakes up the Necrons in the catacombs that the Road Trader Group is currently exploring. Okay. Yeah, and, and of course, causes enough collapses as such that they're now trapped in a maze-like structure. With Necrons. Yeah, find their way out past Necrons and Scarabs, etc. Uh, and, and that really, it, it becomes a, then a run and gun uh, to negotiate your way through the Necron catacombs to escape, um, where it's then discovered that the group has somehow inadvertently awakened a Tomb Stalker, so you familiar with Tomb Stalker, Mike? There's yep, sort of yep. a giant... Giant millipede. Giant, yeah, that's right, yep. Uh, and it the book implies... The, essentially right. the thing that I think uh, Ferris Manus killed. Okay, no worries. Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, and then the, the so the group comes to the surface as that thing bursts out of the surface. And so the, the implication in the book is that the way the group should choose to deal with it is by trying to lure it into a spot where they can bombard it with their ships uh, yeah, they can radio to their ship and, and tell, tell the ship to bombard this thing from orbit basically yeah. pinpoint precision <laughs> strike <laughs> now, hitting now, something what a couple of hundred meters long yeah, at most yeah, yeah a tombstone is not the size of a titan it's big don't get wrong it's big you know the, the, the forge... it's the size of like a car yeah, the, the Forge World miniature base is like two dreadnoughts put together, sort of, you know. It's, yeah. like, it's a long... It, it's as wide as a, as a tomato base, but it's double length as such, you know. So, oh. so it's similar to like a Land Raider, you know, oh, maybe here. Yeah. Um, and, and keeping in mind that if you look at the orbital bombardment rules from Into the Storm, that, you know, the deviate... So the, the amount of damage done by a lance strike is one square kilometre, and the amount of damage done by a macro battery strike is ten square kilometres... Um, it, it, it's sort of a bit, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a bit weird to say that you know your characters are able to lure it somewhere that your ship can you know pinpoint you say pinpoint strike it without 
obliterating the crew as well. And on top of that, they actually list the stats for this thing on a on a personal scale. You know, so it's got ninety wounds. That's a lot. You know, it does say the group should realize they can't hurt it. It's got a toughness bonus of twelve. So you know, it's going to be it's, it's going to be hard to deal damage to, but not impossible. You know, a lot of groups may come up with other you know ideas better plans of, of how they might take it out as such. And so, let's uh, be honest, better plans. <laughs> it's a terrible plan. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, send down a flyer or something, you know. Yeah, I I mean, yeah. (laughs) Use the las cannons on a shuttle or something. It's got to be something. Yeah. So, uh, look, the overall overall is not badly written. It's just that it's like, it's all this social context at the start, which is there for no real reason other than to characterise and progress the storyline. And then a whole bunch of run and gun followed by a big climactic battle that you're not supposed to be able to handle with your character's raw stats, you've got to sort of come up with. I mean, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that, the whole idea about we can't just shoot this thing to death. Can I, can I just say a couple of things? Yes. First of all, you've got a Tyranid invasion and a Chaos Uprising occurring on this planet at the same time. Yes. I think your shipping orbit might be a little bit busy. <laughs> to go into low orbit and blast a Necron Tombstalker. <laughs> Pinpoint precision. It's, it's, what I'd be more concerned about is the fact that someone has just flown a, a ship into this planet... I'd be a bit worried about trying to get any vehicles in low orbit without being the risk of the, the yeah. Imperial Navy suddenly designing, oh my God, they're doing it again. They're doing <laughs> it again and blasting it out of the sky. Yeah, I mean, it's... Do they... Do you at least get the treasure at the end? Mm. There is... Okay, like with all of these um, modules, there is like a, a few um, items that, you know... And with some of the modules, like the Death Watch one, the items are like ridiculously powerful. Like, you know, it's like... To, to, if you had this in your campaign, this would be a game-changing one. Yes, there are three items in, in Shedding Light, but they are pretty basic. You know, like, like one, one of them... I can remember two of them. So, so one of them is a shard of glass that is like a mirror, but it only reflects realities other than the one you're currently in. Okay. And, and its mechanic in the game is that once per game session, you can re-roll a failed roll because you see the ultimate reality and you do that instead as such, you know. Okay. Uh, and there's one which is a um, an unforged blade that you can forge into a blade, and it becomes a, uh, a basically it gives a weapon made out of it the mono quality, and the fact that any defensive rolls against it, so dodge or parry, at minus twenty. Oh yeah. Yeah, but I mean they're they're, they're not, not game. They're not changing. game changing. Not like well, the, the shard of glass is essentially a free fate point which can't be burned. Yeah, that's it. You know that's not that's powerful, but that's not game-breaking. No, not yeah. really. So. Okay, yeah, that's all right. Actually, that's that's about on standard with the completion of a major endeavour towards the end, getting the piece of treasure. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy. But, plus, there's profit factor reward as well. So, yeah. Not that any yeah. of this really matters. It's a combat. It's, it's a combat. Designed yeah, but, yeah, as a combat. Look, like, like, you could use this as a jump-off point to a campaign or as a part of a campaign. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's just... It's like... So, like being... Discovering a Necron tomb on the, on the planet at the same time that... You know, chaos ritual brings down a ship full of tyrannies. Is uh... <laughs> is a bit much. Yeah, I'd probably change that. I'd just have a just a hive quake. Yeah, just have a hive quake. They happen all the time. Yeah, you can't build giant kilometer high structures on the surface planet without having some impact on the ground around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you just at times, you know, the foundations settle a little bit. <laughs> a level of the hive which no one uses might collapse. Yeah. Hivequake. 
Yeah. Problem solved. And yeah, so I mean, look, for, for nothing wrong with doing climactic, game changing events at conventions. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it's a one off game as such, you know, but you could easily dumb it down to be a little bit more more straightforward as such. And, and, and I'd say rework that ending if you're trying to shoot a bloody tombstalk with a, with a lance or a macro cannon. Yeah. It's a bit terrible, but That's okay. It. Uh, or maybe, maybe what you could do is uh, you could use the concept that the Navy become aware of this Xenos thing on the on the surface and they are manoeuvring a ship into position to orbitally bombard it and you've got to come up with another way of destroying it before you're caught in said bombardment as such. So yeah. it almost make it a like a time imperative thing where... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, could have, you could have a race against the clock as well. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So look, overall, it's a bit of fun. Um, yeah, unfortunately, you can't buy it anymore. It was only a few dollars when you could, but uh, if you did get it, then uh, great. yeah, great. We're with him. We're play off. Okay. okay, let's keep going. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. Okay, so for this final discussion, uh, I wanted to talk about not system wise because there are systems for this, but we'll cover it another time. About the concept of coming up with your own Xeno races. Yeah. So. It's very easy to come up with some weird animal-like creature, you know. Just some, you know, describe all the worst things put together. You know, the the, the head of a lion on the body of a, of a giant spider with a snake's tail and such. You know, whatever you want to do, or, or or go for even weirdness and such. But more, what we're talking about here is the concept of intelligent aliens. Giraffe's head and neck on the body of a hippopotamus <laughs> with duck wings. Uh, so. What I want to point out here first off is let's put aside 40k sort of styling aside. There is a modern school of thought that if alien life does exist out in the universe, it's either so similar to us because the exact circumstances to to create um, intelligent life are so specific it would generally create the same the same thing, you know, or are so different to us as to be barely barely distinguishable by us as life at all yeah you know um and and and, yeah it's it's an odd one you know it's an odd little thought experiment but uh one thing i always try to capture with new alien races in 40k is that because of the nature of mankind in 40k where they are so insular they're not accepting of outside groups as such is to really play up the the unusual nature the difference the difference of, of any of any alien race as such yeah so for example, in my current road trading game, without giving away some spoilers, because I sort of know what where this race has come from. So the group has discovered this pyramid-like structure. Straight away, Necrons. If it involves pyramids, it's got to be Necrons. Uh, it's not Necrons. It obviously <laughs> uh, wasn't Necrons. <laughs> uh, and, and inside that, they, they encountered uh, an entity that appeared to be like an apparition. So it was, it was, in, it was incorporeal, but visible. Um, and, and, you know, when they shot at it, you know, it didn't seem to wound us. Like it, 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 it was almost like a floating cloud. So the the bullets would sort of pass through it and drag the the sections of the cloud with it, like you know, like I guess a bullet passing through a thick fog. Um, but it you know didn't seem to actually hurt the creature as such. So straight away, it is not something that the group has any way to really come up with a reason with. You know, I don't know if you thought about talking to it at all, but you know, if it didn't no. have it, it, ha- it had no discernible anatomy for con- conversation. It had hands, I suppose. It could have gesticulated, I guess. But, um, yeah. <laughs> it was a filthy, filthy Xenos. All it deserved was the purging fire of the Imperium. Yeah, and that's it. So it, it was so different from what the group was expecting, or what the group, what the group was, uh, 
as to no longer be something that they considered to be um, in- intelligent life at all. It was intelligent in such that it, it had an, it clearly had an agenda. It was doing things. It was doing but, things, and it had technology. But... Yeah, but no, no one felt you know. Oh, well, maybe we can reason with this. So. <laughs> you can't reason with it. He's an alien. Everything it would have said would have been lies, and it has no soul because it's not a human. Exactly. Yeah. And Mike very nicely here is capturing the you know, the, the xenophobia of the Imperium as such. Xenophobia uh, of truth. <laughs> so the I mean in 40k you've got the bait, you've got the standard race, you've got your elder, you've got your orcs, and, that, and, and we we covered a listener question recently where a listener was basically saying, "Look, I I, I want to bring all these 40k elements into my game, but you know." My, my group has met Chaos Space Marines and Eldar and Tau, and you know, and now I'm out of I'm out of ideas. And so, this is where you know there are a lot of new races that were created for these RPGs. You know, the the Slort, you know, the the Uvath, uh, the Strixus. These are all brought about in Dark Heresy or Road Trader or, or um, Death Watch. So. You also grab hold of a copy if you can of first edition Rogue Trader. It's got loads of alien races that never made it. Yeah, yeah, loads of stuff. You got a big groats in. Have, have, have some groats wandering around. And... Zotes. So zotes. So it's not groats. Zotes. Zotes. Yeah. <laughs> no, the zotes. Or zoats, are all dead. As some people call it. Yeah. Zotes. Now they're all dead, unfortunately. Sad day for the Imperium. Squats. Squats. Uh, well, I think they're all dead as well. No, no, they're, they're demiurge now. They're, they're, oh. they're, they're, they're a stable mutation. They're not, they're not a separate race. Well, this is the thing with squats. They brought them back, kind of, and they said that they all got eaten by the Tyranids and the demiurge are something else. Oh, okay, no worries, okay. Oh, they've always don't changed tell, their Don't minds. tell me they changed canon. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so, what you need to do is change your own canon, or at least bring in your own stuff as well, because 40k players are going to expect to see the things that they, they, they expect to see. They see a pyramid... It's totally Necrons. You know. Or Thousand Suns. <laughs> or but Thousand Suns. It's nothing else. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Uh, the uh, idea that any other any other group could possibly comprehend the idea of four <laughs> sides meeting together at a point is beyond them. That's it. Um, so, yeah, feel free to, especially when you've got veteran 40k players, to create new and unusual things. Uh, and focus on that, the, that which is unusual, because that's what's going to actually make the players act in the way the characters would act, which is with absolute uncertainty uh, and the belief that this thing is not what they want to be dealing with at all as such. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, come up with the things that either are uh, unable to converse or converse through weird means, because there was some conversation in that, well, not conversation, not two-way conversation, but the entity that the group encountered, given that it was some sort of, you know, biomechanical uh, or not bio, like, like spiritual slash mechanical thing it could actually take control of the ship's Vox circuits and it was effectively emitting messages to the crew through the Vox circuits of the ship as such which in itself is you know Event Horizon style creepiness uh, and, and helps to really build that sort of concept of the alien and unusual in your game yeah um, keep in mind that there are some aliens as well that the Empire does have or these rogue traders does have do have regular traffic with you know the Strixers have an alien culture, you know you can you can still have a lot of fun with the Strixers being quite odd, but at the end of the day they you can still talk to them you can still trade with them yeah uh, their their you know their anatomy is still discernible, uh, and you could easily create other similarly um, similarly crafted creatures as well, uh, you know look at Star Trek Star Trek had so many different you know. Just take a human, give them weird ears or a weird forehead. 
and you've got and you've got a, a Star you've got Trek. a new alien race. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say go a bit more, a bit more creative than that, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, your game isn't limited by your makeup budget. No, that's right. Yeah, so maybe Star Wars is a better example where there yeah. are some, where there are some quite odd aliens, you know, that are that are clearly you know amphibian or have four arms and stuff, you know, and there are some that are you know variations on the the sort of human slash elder theme of yeah, you know, bipedal, soft skinned. Mammal or such, yeah. 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 I don't really have much else to say on this one. It's just a something I would encourage you to do. Don't don't get stuck with just the you know the main always races. Always it. Yeah, yeah. Order. yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and it does help keep players on their toes. Yeah, you know, to, to sort of encounter stuff that is not real. And uh, you know, the moment that you put in, uh, you know, a gene stealer, the group is going to have a concept of how they need to deal with this. Yeah. You know, I, I kill it with fire. <laughs> kill it with fire. Quarantine yeah. Yeah. any crew who are exposed to it. Yeah, don't let it touch you as such. That's the stuff you know. Whereas yeah. if if the if the group doesn't know, know about, it, then they have to come up with their own mechanism for how to deal with it as such. Which is probably kill it with fire. Don't let it touch kill you. But fire. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there, there are other options sometimes. So yeah, sometimes you have hard vacuum to kill it. with. <laughs> That's it, yeah, well, fire is bad on a ship. You don't want the ship on fire. Yeah. yeah unless you've got the ship in our road trading game, which catches on fire on its own. Yes. That's <laughs> it. Okay, then let's move on to closing out the show. Oh, okay. All astropaths in the quiet chamber. Message incoming. So at this point in the show, we usually go through any sort of new reviews we've received or comments from listeners. Uh, I haven't seen new reviews in the last uh, month, but I have seen a few new comments on our Facebook page. Yep. Not really questioned. Or what, there were some questions, but things we can tackle quite easily. So to start off with, uh, we had uh, Federico asked, uh, is there a way to download the podcast episodes on mobile devices? I'm assuming this is other than iTunes, because right now we've only put it up on iTunes. So yeah. I'm guessing Android users, and you're an Android user, Mike, so you probably know more than I do, need to download the MP3 file and manually load it. Uh, I think there are podcast options for I'll be we, honest we, I don't listen to we, any sort of sound okay well we have we have an RSS we have an RSS feed on our website which is linked to from the main page and I think there are things that you I think there are other services you can't load podcasts to so if you are a listener of the show who has to download the mp3 files and mainly unload them put them on your phone because you're a Windows phone user or a Samsung phone user or you just hate iTunes uh, and you do have a particular service you would like us to look into putting our podcast onto please leave a comment on our facebook page and i will look into making it happen as well yeah there's an option okay sounds good uh okay next thing was uh celine on facebook asked us uh are there any warmer 40k rpg actual play podcasts uh we obviously do our <laughs> dark heresy uh second edition game i put the audio only versions of those on my website as well so once again questions are listener base would people like it if I was to actually also put up an RSS feed that I could then put on iTunes of the audio-only versions of our actual play sessions as well? Yeah. Uh, if the answer is yes, please let us know on our Facebook page or Google+. Uh, and finally, Patrick on Facebook, uh, just let us know that he's found our podcast recently and he's currently going through our back catalogue. So, Excellent. Uh, given that there are 71 episodes, probably this one, it might take him a while before he hears this. But when he does, welcome aboard. Yeah, and uh, uh, welcome aboard everyone else new as well. So uh, that's it for the comments. Uh, if you do want to contact the show, you can do so through several means. Our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus on grimdartpodcast. 
Uh, we tweet irregularly through at Grimdart Podcast, and you can email us at uh, show at grimdartpodcast.com. So, coming up, episode 73 in... Oh, I'll have to see what... Because I've got a bit of travel over the next two weeks. We'll have to work out <laughs> of course you how can. travel fits in with... You know, it's just that time of year. You yeah, know? I've, yeah. got a, I've got a lot of interstate and international yeah. travel at the moment. It's that so. time of year between January the 1st and December the... <laughs> We've been, we, look, we've been, slightly we've been pretty good, okay? okay. It's, it's, it's just we've been rough recently. Uh, anyway, so it's Death Watch episode. Uh, what I can tell you we are doing right now is we're going to be talking about the Raven Guard. Uh, and we're also going to be reviewing Death Mask. Uh, I will come out with the rest of the show topics, but I'm thinking, given that we're talking about Raven Guard, we almost need to have a topic of discussion about Marines and stealth. Because there's something unstealthy about an eight-foot-tall giant in Parama, mm-hmm. but... Especially when they're painted to their power armor bright yellow or bright blue <laughs> or reflective yeah, but, silver. Yeah, but but they do it. They have the, the, the skills required. Yeah, nothing so. <laughs> says stealthy like reflective silver armor. Yeah. It's not reflective silver. It's unpainted ceramite. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, I like, like silver skulls. Or... Yeah, silver skulls. Grey knights don't paint their armor. That's true. They, anyway, anyway, we're off topic here. Uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, we'll come up with a topic anyway for that show and we look forward to catching it with So Mike, thank you for taking part tonight. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you out there, everyone. everyone in Radio Land for listening and we will see you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or for dead with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Vivio's Media Kelly, music.vivio.com.